Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm very privileged today to have Sir Jackie Stewart for the interview. So, uh, Sir Jackie, thank you very much for doing the interview. Very grateful. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Let's get straight in then. Do you remember the first time you fell in love with racing cars? Well, that is a long time ago because <laughs> it wasn't during my career. It was my brother who was eight years older than I was or I am eight years older than I was because he's passed away now. But he was driving for a Curia course, the Scottish team. Um, and that meant he was driving all over the world, actually, because at that time, a course were a big deal. You know, they won the Le Mans 24-hour race a couple of times. But my, my brother took me to Goodwood, to Silverstone, to Alton Park, to all sorts of places when I was probably 12 years of age. Um, and I've got the autograph still. I've got my still my autograph book of um, you know Sterling Moss, Mike Hawthorne, Fangio, Farina, Perufi, Villaresi, all all these big names. Mm. So um, I was a big fan. I I've still got my scrapbook from those days um, with all these autographs and everything else. So um, no, it was a long time, long before I ever of racing cars mm. because I was shooting from 14 until 23 competitively, you know, for Scotland and for Great Britain. And it wasn't until then, really, that I got into motor racing myself, of course. And when did you know, know that you were good and that you could actually maybe compete at a high level? Never found that out. <laughs> That's a bit of false humility. Was it three world titles you had? The what? Was it three world titles you had? Uh, three world championships, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, there's uh, uh, 71, no, 69, 71, 73. I was second in 68 and I was second in 72, but I had a bad car in 1970. The, the march just wasn't competitive, so we weren't really in it. But uh, no, I had a very good run. Mm. Okay, so um, I understand that uh, when you were young, you had a, a sort of more an undiagnosed dyslexia. Do you think that affected or even impacted your success in any way? Um, well, dyslexia in those days, when I was at school, it was the Dumbarton Academy where I went to school. Um, the teachers didn't know anything about dyslexia then. It wasn't recognized. So you were just identified as dumb, stupid and thick. And I certainly qualified for all three. Um, there was 53 people in the in the class, so in those days it was considered you would looking back it was 10% of the class would have had learning difficulties or dyslexia as I had. So the you know 53 people there was a bunch of us, uh, at least five of us. So these we were the the local idiots really, 
not being able to to keep up with anything, not being able to read properly. To this day, I, I don't know the alphabet. Um, I don't know the Lord's Prayer. I can't remember them. Um, there's all sorts of things when you're dyslexic that you simply can't do that other people do, obviously, so easily. I mean, I, I can't do an iPad, for example. This is being done for me. Um, but when you are dyslexic, you don't think like the clever folk. You think out the box, and therefore you find new ways of doing things. And lots of other people, you know, Branson's dyslexic. He's done quite well. Mm. Churchill was dyslexic. Muhammad Ali, dyslexic. Um, Leonardo da Vinci, dyslexic. And, and so was Einstein. <laughs> so therefore, when you, when you are dyslexic, your school years are unquestionably, in, in my case, and I'm sure for many others who might be watching this, well, the most unhappy times of my life. It was just so bad. But having said that, um, it helped me in so many other ways to uh, to do things that maybe I would not, never have done. Mm. And do you think it gave you a little bit more drive to prove yourself that you had value and, and talent? I think what it did do, when I found that I was good at something, then I really clicked. And I really gave 110%. That was my shooting because I won most of the major championships. Um, um, and my motor racing, again, it was a surprise that I was really any good at both of those because when you're told school by your teacher you're stupid, dumb and thick, um, therefore you can very easily get a big inferiority complex. So when you do well, suddenly you're doing something that, and being successful at it that you never thought you would ever reach that level. So you hang on to it real hard. And, of course, you try harder even to improve whatever you've found to be good at. Great. Thank you. Um, quite a lot of people who are watching live have said that they think it's great the things that you're doing to be honest about dyslexia and help other people. Like you said, I know a lot of people who have it. And the common thing, my friend Neville Wright, who sold kiddie care for 75 million, he said he had it chronically. He said literally numbers and letters on the blackboard at school would move in his eye line and he, they were just all over the place. And he said that got him out selling on the um, playgrounds and wanting to, to set up his business. So it's nice to see people turning it into a positive as opposed to thinking it's some kind of illness, which... Well, the problem is that it's difficult when you are a young person and people are telling you you're dumb, stupid and thick, um, such as teachers are. And even to this day, uh, there's a, a great lack of education in that field. In Scotland, we have something called Dyslexia Scotland, which I formed. And we've got Scotland, every teacher training college in Scotland now teaches the new generation of, of teachers how to recognise children with learning disabilities and accordingly look after them in a different way. Mm. That's still not happening, you, you, you know, for example, down in England and in many other countries in, in a full sense. Some of the schools do it, but not all of the schools, whereas in Scotland, we've managed to do that. Small country, easy to get, you know, politics running a little more comfortably than the big place. Yeah. OK, so um, changing subject slightly. Um, you retired, I believe, in 73 reigning world champion, 
Um, how does one transition from being the best in the world to then having to do something completely new and different? Well, for me, it was it turned out to be relatively not easy, but um, exciting. Uh, one of the things that motor racing is very lucky because as a sportsman in motor racing, I was um, able through Ford Motor Company, who, who I was with for 40 years, Rolex, who I've now been with for more than 50 years, 51 years, Moten Shandon, I, I, I've now been with 50 years, and I was with ABC's Wide World of Sports, I was you know, doing television in America, I had all sorts of other relationships, Goodyear Tan Rubber Company for 18 years. So when you're a racing driver, unlike, let's say, a track and field athlete, there's so many industries associated with motorsport that if you really get your head together and you service these multinational corporations well, there's a good chance they're going to keep you on. Mm. And in my particular case, that's what happened. So these relationships, many of them I'm still with, um, and it broadens from there. So motor racing is a better platform than almost any other sport I can think of. And therefore, that made it easier for me because here I am today still doing probably a minimum of 10 Grand Prix weekends in a year, along with a whole lot of other activities that I'm doing for Heineken, for example, and Rolex to this day in a pretty intense way. So the sport is global, which also helps. Um, there's more people drive cars now um, for example, in India, than the combined total of the United States of America and Canada. So motorsport, and particularly Formula One, which is by far the most important one, um, allows me to continue those relationships. And fortunately, because I was working with very good people at Ford and all these other companies, and today with Rolex and Heineken, you're, you're dealing with top-line people. You're learning so much about the communication skills that are required. You're doing TV commercials. You're, you're doing a lot of television, such as I'm doing right now. Um, so all of these things add up, uh, and therefore I'm probably busier now than I've ever been in my whole life. Wow. Did you plan your retirement before you retired? Did you set up these ambassadorial or brand partnership roles and, you know, you knew you could transition or was it just, OK, I'm retiring and, and these things fell into place? No, I had made up my mind and I think it was April of 1973 when I decided that I wanted to retire at the end of that season. Um, I didn't tell anyone other than Ken Tyrrell, who I used to drive for at that time, and Walter Hayes of the Ford Motor Company and one other person. Nobody else knew. My wife didn't know that I was wow. going to retire, my family or anyone else for that matter. Um, but I was just burned out. Um, I had mononucleosis, which is a blood disorder when you're doing too many things, not getting enough sleep. Um, in 1971, for example, I, try, I traveled across the North Atlantic 86 times. Um, going to America to do TV commercials or Can-Am races or touring car races, back and forward to do Formula One, etc. 
86 times across the pond is an awful lot. I don't care who you are, um, while you're still having to drive Grand Prix cars. So therefore, I was burned out. And yeah. I nearly retired at the end of that year. I nearly retired in 72, but I definitely decided in about April 73 that I was going to see the season through because Ken Tyrrell, the man I was driving for, if you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. If I had dropped out in the middle of the season, that would not have been good for him. And I went on to win the World Championship that year, and he also got the Constructors' Championship. So uh, it was important for me to, to fulfil the season. Yeah. How did your wife react when you told her you are going to retire? Well, uh, unfortunately, it was the last Grand Prix of the year uh, in Watkins Glen, and our, my teammate, Francois Sever, sadly had a huge accident in practice qualifying the day before Saturday and he was killed. Um, Helen was there. Um, I withdrew from the race and in respect to Francois and his family. So I only did 99 Grand Prix in fact my whole career. And I told Helen that evening that I was no longer going to become a, ra uh, be a racing driver. So uh, it was of course, I think a relief for her uh, and I suppose the family too. But um, for me, it was exactly the right time to retire. And it's just a great pity that it was under those circumstances uh, in the case of Francois's accident. Yeah, I guess a lot of people watching who are not of your generation wouldn't really understand how dangerous it was back then. Oh, yeah. I mean, all of my personal friends in racing got killed. I mean, you Jochen Rent, Francois Sever, Jim Clark, uh, oh, just a whole lot of them. The, the old Pierce Courage, just everybody got killed. It was ridiculous. There, there was no decent firefighting, and there was no runoff areas, there was telegraph poles, and there was trees on the edge of the racetrack. Um, it, it really was badly done. And I had a big war, if you like, to get safety changed in Formula One, maybe one of the most important things I've done in my life, because at that time I was president of this, this, something called the Grand Prix Drivers Association. And when you're world championship material, you're able to get more media, more influence, even with the track owners and the organizers. So we changed all that. We had to close the German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, which was by far 
the most exciting Grand Prix in the year as long as you didn't have an accident. It was 14.7 miles around with 187 corners per lap, but there was no safety. There was no firefighting. There was not enough marshalling. Um, and the same applied to the Belgian Grand Prix and Spa-Francorchamps, which we're still running with, uh, but it's been changed enormously. And the track is now very safe. But in those days, the tracks were more dangerous. The cars were more fragile. Today, Formula One cockpit, a driver sits in now is almost a survival cell. It's fantastic technology and Formula One leads the world and that type of stuff. Mm. That's an amazing story. I think it's inspiring how active you were in helping the safety of the drivers. Um, yeah, because no one should be killed doing the sport that they love. No, but of course, the establishment that time were from a different generation almost. And we were the new generation arriving um, and it just had to change. Um, and had I not been world champion two or three times, um, I don't think I would have got the same audience uh, and the same platform to actually change it. And even then we got a huge um, abuse from the media, the motor racing and media, particularly the, enth the enthusiasts saying, oh, you know, the chicken, why does he not just retire? But there was no point in killing people unnecessarily. And that's what was happening. Uh, there was just no marshalling on the same level there is today. And it was just very poorly handled. But fortunately, that's changed. And Today, there's more people fall off horses and die than in Grand Prix racing. We've got a fantastic record today because the governing body of the sport is more powerful. Of course, the promoters are more powerful. The track owners themselves are, are more responsible. Uh, and the drivers and the constructors of the cars are making just better products. Thank you. I think that's amazing what you've done. Um, so if we were to change subjects slightly, I know you've had a 50-year association with Rolex. I'm a bit of a watch. Um, I'm a passionate watch collector myself. Um, did you, was there a reason you chose to partner with Rolex? And has that, you know, just talked through maybe a bit about your ambassadorial roles, role with Rolex? Well, first of all, is that a Rolex you're wearing today? Unfortunately, it's not. I should have dug one out. It's an Odemars Piguet. <laughs> Sorry. I think, I, I think you should save up for one. Okay, uh, fine. Um, no, wonderful relationship. 50 years is an incredible relationship to have as any sports person, I think. Um, Arnold Palmer and a man called Jean-Claude Kelly, who won in Olympics in 1968. He won the slalom, the giant slalom and the downhill, something that nobody's ever done since. And he, all three of us signed on the same weekend. It was actually 14th of April, I think it was in 1968 and I've been with Rolex ever since a, a fantastic company with of course an amazing product range it's beautiful but long-term relationships I've always felt are the important things my long-term relationship with Moyton Chandon for example because I was the first person to spray champagne in Formula One uh, has gone on for those 50 years um, all these Ford Motor Companies, 40 years, and I'm still very friendly with the Ford family and many of the major players. You build relationships. You therefore can have continuity uh, commercially sometimes. 
And motorsport's very good for that because there's so many different areas, whether it's electronics or nowadays or carbon, carbon fiber or all of the things that we need. Um, that's why basically a racing driver is better off than some other sports people to have continuity after their retirement. In my case, we started up something called post-stewart racing because my son wanted to go racing. I didn't want him to go racing. So the safest way for me was to be sure I had the best mechanics and the best people looking after it. So we started a team and it grew up to be a Formula One team, uh, Stuart Grand Prix. And we had terrific drivers drive for us and we gave them a great education on the way up as to how to extend their careers over the longer periods, such as maybe I have. You know, people like Montoya, David Coulthard, Castro Nevis, Gilles de Ferran, Alan McNish, um, and many more uh, in that posture racing a Stuart Grand Prix arena. Um, I mean, that was a good educational thing for me, but it was it was a business. And, um, you know, that has filled my life because of that. I'm still so-called Jackie Stewart, and still I go to all of these races around the world. So the sport's been very generous to me. So it sounds like you have quite a lot of business interests. If you have these brand associations and ambassador roles, you have a team. How do you balance having all these, you know, vast business interests and, and family life? And it's, it's not very difficult. They're all wonderful people. I'm dealing with senior management all of the time. I travel well. I I enjoy going back to all of these locations where I've clearly raced and therefore I've got a lot of friends. I'm flying, of course, to Australia for the first Grand Prix of the season. Um, I know all of the people down there and, of course, I've been around the sport for a long time. I'm down there for Rolex because it's actually the Rolex Grand Prix of Australia. They have the title sponsorship there. But with Heineken, I'm doing all sorts of different things with them. Uh, Grand Prix racing, of course, being the main thing. So blue chip companies um, is what you really need to aim for. And when they're blue chip, there's a very good chance if you deliver for them that you have long-term relationships. And long-term relationships are the best to have. I mean, I've been married for, what is it? 56 years or 54 years. I'm, I should know that. Are you but, asking someone in the background there? <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be I think it might be 56. I'm not quite sure. So long-term relationships, that's what most people really should look at doing. And sports men and women are capable of doing all that because they get, get terrific exposure nowadays because of television uh, as well as you know, radio and media of other kinds. The internet now is so powerful. So really a top line sportsman or sportswoman can have long legs with regards to relationships that turn out to be commercial and therefore they've got a future ahead of them rather than, you know, in many sports, you're going to retire at a fairly young age just because you burn out or you're not capable after a certain age. And what are you going to do for the rest of your life? So I think all sports people should look at this 
and what, how they should behave, how they should present themselves, how they should have relationships that they can build upon, um, because they're unique people. If they get to the top of there, whether it's football, rugby, cricket, equestrian, you know, all the sports that we know of, um, there's usually a superstar, mm. and that superstar can have legs. Mm. How have you managed to resist the temptation then? I guess there have been plenty of companies that have been waiving the contracts or the cash. Of course, football, someone can jump from a t to a new team every three years and double their salary. You know, someone can be, I know many people in golf maybe have AP as their sponsor and then they go to Rolex because they can get a bigger payday. But you've been very clear, stay with the same um, company and have a long-term play. How, how have you managed to be... Long-term relationships, in my view, takes you under-promise and you over-deliver. And if you keep over-delivering, you do more than perhaps you are being paid for, you'll seldom get the sack. Uh, you've got to deliver, you've got to present yourself well, you've got to uh, make other people enjoy uh, whatever you're doing with you. Because if I'm going to a Grand Prix, um, a lot of people go to that Grand Prix. There's a lot of corporate hospitality. There's dinners and nights, sometimes lunches during the day and sometimes even breakfasts in the morning. So you, you've got to be able to do all of these things with a, with a, you know, a smile on your face and be able to deliver. So if you do that, um, you become a, a very important part of, of that company's team because every activity has a team, you know, whether it's a management team, whether it's a middle management team or whatever it may be. So you've just got to deliver all the time. Yeah, love it. Um, what are the commonalities of the best drivers you've ever seen? And maybe that's technical, but also in um, themselves. Oh, good question. Uh, the best driver I ever saw, I never raced against, was a man called Juan Manuel Fangio, an Argentinian who won the World Championship, I think it was five times, but he did it in five different racing cars. In other words, five different teams. He was amazing. And he had dignity and he had style and he became president of Mercedes-Benz Argentina, for example. He saw the opportunities beyond the steering wheel. Um, and I've tried to do the same type of thing. Jim Clark was the best racing driver I ever raced against. He, he was fantastic. And of course, since then, and he sadly was killed, I've been to most all of the Grand Prix around the world. So therefore, you know, I've seen the Senna's and the Prost's, um, of course, the Vettel's and, and, and today the Lewis Hamilton's. So I've been fortunate enough to see all of these people and they've all got a special something. Uh, or they wouldn't be at the top end of their, their business. And Lewis at the present time is going to go on and win more world championships because he's chose to be with Mercedes-Benz. And they've got more money than any other racing team right now in the business. And they're, um, you know, they're just a, a very successful package at the moment. I mean, they won the world championship with Sterling Moss, and he's one of the great drivers that, of course, I've got his autograph, and uh, and I've seen him racing, but he's well retired, longer than I have, obviously, been retired. But his name still stands strong. 
you know, a lot of people, you know, if you're doing too fast a speed, they turn around and say, what do you, who do you think you are? Sterling Moss. <laughs> it's still there. Um, so those people will always be at the top end. And as long as you keep the profile clean, tidy, and exciting to be with, you will retain that privilege of having great relationships and financially, obviously, um, very supportive. Okay, so in addition to the right car, good technical ability, the style, the flair, are there any like mindset traits? Yeah, I, I think the most important thing that I have, it doesn't matter whether you're a television announcer or an interviewer, whether you're a banker or whether you're a racing driver or anything else for that matter, I find the single most important thing is mind management. If you've got good mind management, you don't get overexcited and you never get too depressed. There's always a reason for something going wrong. You can fix it if you're really thinking about what you're doing. And if you have mind management, you don't overdrive. You don't underdrive because you've got to deliver. Mind management is the single most important. And I think the Fangio's and the Sterling Mosses and the Jim Clarks and so forth had that. And so also has Lewis Hamilton uh, and the current generation of drivers like Vettel, etc. So uh, there's not many that have made it really professionally top end and done everything right. That's the same in any sport or any business for that matter. But I, I think man managing the mind, you know, if you get angry and you don't manage the mind, You'll get into an argument. You'll say something that later you wish you had never said, but the damage is done. So therefore, if little grey cells are working at the right pace, the chances are you're not going to get yourself into that pickle of bother. And how did you develop that? And, and did you have to work on that when you were maybe younger and more fiery? Well, it's quite interesting because I think I learned that from shooting because Play pigeon trap shooting as I was doing Olympic trap, which meant I was going around the world doing it, and I was shooting for Great Britain after I was shooting for Scotland. When you're shooting, for example, and at the beginning of the event, a big event, you know, European Championship, World Championship, and you're all tight, and you miss the first target, you never get it back. It's then from that point on going to be 199 out of a 200. You never get it back. A golfer can get it back. Tennis player can get it back. Racing driver can get it back. But I learned that from shooting. Um, and I think that was probably the biggest asset that I got out of participating in another sport because I learned how to handle success and failure as a shooter. Um, I had great guidance by the captain of the British shooting team, for example, at that time. And I learned an awful lot from that sport before I got into motorsport, uh, not just Formula One, the formative classes of the sport as well. So I think that probably is the most important thing that I ever learned, is how to concentrate to a point where emotions didn't come into it. Remove emotions. Emotions are dangerous. You say things when you're angry that later you wish you had never said. 
you get overexcited or something when you've just won something and before you know where you are, you've spent the money. Um, so keeping the head together is really the single most important thing of all and always delivering. Amen. So um, I'm really grateful for you um, spending the time with us, Sir Jackie. So we're just going to do a quick fire finishing round. So this should just take a few minutes. Hey, look, you can answer in as much or as little detail as you want. That's your choice. Um, so first thing is, um, what's the best advice you can remember that you ever received? Don't think you're better than you are. Love it. And can you remember any of the worst advice you ever received? You need to drive faster. <laughs> if there was one thing you could do differently, if you were to have your career again, what would that be? To have all the guys that were killed brought back. My sport, I fully enjoyed. There wasn't much left for me um, to win. And that's the only thing that's missing. Most, you know, all my friends are no longer with me. Um, could you share something about you or your career that maybe a lot of people don't know? Not that I'd like to talk about. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I'll, I'll take the hint and move on. Um, this podcast is called uh, Disruptive Entrepreneur. It has the word disruptive in it. What does the word disruptive mean to you? Um, not surrounding yourself with the best people. My engineers and mechanics were better at what they did than what I was at what I did. And therefore, I didn't have as many mechanical failures as other people did. My, you know, to finish first, first you must finish. And the people that surround you, whether you're television personality or whether you're an entertainer or whether you're a sports person or whether you're a business person um, you know you've just got to keep your head and never get carried away with a wee bit of a success success you know can disappear pretty pretty quickly okay um, is there one thing in the world that you feel strongly you'd like to change mm. I'd like to see a cure for dementia <laughs> Because unfortunately, Helen, my wife, has got dementia. And at the moment, there's no cure or there's no preventive medicine, which is probably even worse. So I've started something called Race Against Dementia to try and raise money to get young professors, young ones, and hopefully outside of the current culture to bring new ways of doing things. Because for 30 years, no solutions been found. So we're getting those young PhDs that I'm, you know, some race against dementia, the money we raise for that goes to get those young PhDs. I want them to be doing it differently than the people that have been teaching them in universities and medical centers. They've got to find new ways of doing things. And that would be my wish, that uh, if we could change dementia is the same in many ways as Alzheimer's, and 50 million people in the world have that and there's no cure for it. So we've got to do something about it. So um, I know we, we donated um, and I think it's really important. My nan had it, uh, Sir Jackie. So could you tell us again the, um, the name of your charity so that anyone watching might uh, feel kind enough to donate? It's Race Against Dementia. It's a global charity. It's tax deductible. It goes right around the world because it's a global illness. And um, 
my challenge in my lifetime is hopefully to find a cure for it or even more importantly, preventive medicine. So these young PhDs that I'm getting, uh, we're sending them into Red Bull and McLaren to see how quickly they can find problem solving in a way that no other industry that I know of uh, does. So we're going to use motorsport as their motivator. Um, and I, I hope that will bring some sort of a different attitude, if you like, to finding the enormous problem that it is, because the brain here is by far the most technical thing in the whole world. It's so complicated, and, and that's why it's taken so long to find a cure for it. I'm really inspired by what you've done. You do amazing work in many areas. Um, the campaigning for safety, the, the charities that you support, their brand ambassadorial roles. I want to say thank you on behalf of everyone watching and listening. If we could finish on a nice high, what has been your greatest driving pleasure? Greatest driving pleasure? I think in racing it was driving a car called the Matra, a French car with a Ford engine. And I won my first world championship with it. It was such a sweet car to drive. It was a friendly car to drive. That was a nice thing in, in my sport. And the other thing in life, I made up so many friends because of the sport and connections around the world. That's been the second dimension, if you like. And I very much appreciate everybody that's helped me along the way. So Jackie, thank you very much for taking your time. Very grateful. It's um, been a real privilege for me. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Okay, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, okay, really okay. grateful. Thanks a lot. Yes. When, when I'm interviewed, sir, in 10 years' time, I'll be interviewed and they'll say to me, what is your greatest feat? And I will say, holding the iPad up <laughs> for 46 minutes. Oh, is it still on? I'm just laughing. <laughs> I can hear you yet. <laughs> Sorry. I'm trying... <laughs> What, a, what an achievement. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Did we get that on? Hey, yeah.